listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. We are going to be uh, continuing in Luke chapter 4, and, bef- and as, so as you're turning there, I'd invite you to turn with your, uh, in your Bibles or scroll, whatever you do, and join me there in Luke chapter 4. Um, I just want to do, I want to thank Troy for uh, filling the pulpit last week, and I hope and pray that you were blessed uh, by his message. Um, I'm thankful for him. Um, he and I have a history together of three years of seminary, and it was a tough time, but a sweet time, and I just appreciate him. Uh, uh, greatly, so I'm thankful that he could uh, be here to to bless you with God's word last week. And we are now just to help reorient us a little bit. Um, we are going to be uh, looking at Jesus' re- return to his hometown of Nazareth. Um, but two weeks ago, we looked at the temptation of Jesus, the first part of Luke chapter four, um, and how it was a God ordained event. It was the Holy Spirit um, that led him out um, into the wilderness. Um, and Jesus was tempted in every way and in every area that we are tempted. Um, he was tempted to act independently of his father. He was tempted to break a rela- the relationship with the, his father. And he was tempted to test the faithfulness of his father. Um, but in all those, um, he did not sin. He remained sinless. And so he is our example of how to, to fight temptation, how we use the word of God to, to, rebuke, to rebuke Satan. So this morning... We will look at Jesus' return to Nazareth, to his hometown. Um, We'll look at also just the first two verses, 14 and 15, just as a snapshot of the ministry um, of Jesus in Galilee. It's kind of a summary, if you will. But what you'll notice, I hope, as I get ready to read, is how the Holy Spirit again plays a prominent role in the ministry of Jesus. If you think about the Holy Spirit who gave testimony concerning Jesus at his baptism, Again, it was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness, and now we'll read this morning that it was the power of the Holy Spirit that equipped Jesus for his ministry um, in the region of Galilee. But all of this tells us, right, that this is, right, God's sovereign plan, and it was God's providence, right, that leads Jesus back to his hometown and leads to what we have is this this engagement that he had with the people in the synagogue in, in Nazareth. But before I get going too far, um, I'd ask you to please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Luke 4, Luke 4 uh, verses 14 through 30. And then I will pray, and then we will have fun this morning in the Word of God. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the lands. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst... He went away. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity you give your church to gather, the opportunity you've given us to gather. Lord, I am thankful for the gift of your words that you use to, to grow us and to sanctify us and to make us more like your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would give us not just ears to hear and minds to understand, but Lord, but you would give us a heart to be moved this morning by the hearing of your words. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. So those, two, those first two verses, verses 14 and 15, again, it's kind of, Luke kind of gives us a summary of the ministry of Jesus in the region, in and around Galilee, and it's pretty safe to say as you look at those verses that the early days of Jesus' ministry were pretty astounding, um, that there, the word was getting out about him, that people were talking about him, there was a buzz right, in these towns and in these villages, in this region, about this man, Jesus. And his teaching was, his teaching was different. Um, he was, draw, it was drawing attention, um, and it deserved recognition. So when it says that all glorified him, he's being glorified by all, that's what it means, like that his teaching was unique, and it was drawing attention to himself. And it deserved to be recognized as something different. Jesus was not some rogue teacher, right, who was teaching on the side streets and in the alleyways of these villages. No, he was going into the synagogues and teaching. Now, the synagogue, right, the origin of a synagogue, and this will be helpful here for, for a moment to think about, really isn't well known. Um, it's not entirely clear when they started popping up. But many believe it happened during the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so these towns 
would establish these synagogues, and they would have recognized leadership. They were very structured. Um, a synagogue would be a place for prayer and for worship, for the reading of Scripture. Typically, what would happen is someone would stand up and would read a passage from the law, and then they, a person would stand up and read a passage from the prophets. And they would stand right out of respect for the Scripture, for the Word of God. And then the person who read would sit down and then would proceed to explain the passage, and then there would be a conversation, there would be a discussion about what was read by all the men who were present there. And so we read now in verses 16 and 17 that Jesus, now we kind of zoom, there's Galilee, and now we're going to zoom in on Nazareth. There's this small, rural, blue-collar town, and they believe there might have been maybe 500 people living there. It was small, but you want to know what? It was the childhood home of Jesus. The people of that town would have known him and would have known his, his family. And they would have known, as Luke tells us, was his custom was to go to the synagogue, right? His parents, Joseph and Mary, had, had trained him from a very young age on the Sabbath. This is where we go, and this is what we, we do. But it was on this particular Sabbath day that Jesus stood up to read. Now, likely, he was appointed to, to read by one of the synagogue leaders, one of the men in the synagogue, and perhaps it was because, hey, this, this Jesus guy that everyone's talking about is here this morning. We should probably have him read and explain. Have you heard his teaching? His reputation is spreading out through all the region, and he's here in Nazareth. And so the, the man, the attendant in the synagogue, hands Jesus the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus unrolls the scroll and finds the place where it was written. Now, I want to encourage you here to, to put yourself in the congregation of that synagogue on that Sabbath day. Here is this man that people are talking about. Here is this man um, whose teaching is different, it's deserving of respect, and he's here, and he's He's, he's standing up to, 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 to read to us. What's he going to read? I mean, what, what, what did he hand? I couldn't really see. What, what scroll did he hand? Where's he going to go in that scroll? What's he going to say to us? And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and he has set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He chose to read from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He chose to read from Isaiah 58, verse 6. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because what would have been the practice in that day in the synagogue, they would have read a large portion of Scripture. So I don't believe that Jesus just read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and Isaiah 58, verse 6. He probably read a larger portion. Luke, as he's writing this orderly account to Theophilus, pairs it down. He hits the highlights. 
similar to, to what I did a few weeks ago when we went through the genealogy of Jesus, right? I didn't read all the names. We didn't labor through all of that, but we kind of hit the highlights. Similar idea. But what Jesus is saying here is unmistakable, that the Holy Spirit rests on him. He's been anointed. He's been commissioned to do the Father's work. Now, I want to take a few moments and unpack Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58 for us and what Jesus, what Luke records for us here. Because the nature of that mission is defined by four phrases. The first being, right, to proclaim the good news to the poor. As God's servant, Jesus has been anointed for this task, and the first part of that task is to proclaim the good news to the poor. That's gospel preaching. It's an announcement, and it's an invitation to people to, to hear the salvation that God is offering people. And when you think of poor, don't necessarily think of materially poor. I mean, it probably was a poor town, but don't think that specifically. Think about people who recognize that they were spiritually poor, that they were in need, there was something lacking, right? And when you talk to people, right, those people who are poor, whether either materially or spiritually poor, right, don't, they seem the most engaged, right? They seem at times the most, the most humble and the most responsive. And so Jesus is there to proclaim the good news to the poor. And if you're here this morning, if you're watching online, listening online, and you're a Christian, you've been saved by the power of God and His gospel, when you were saved... You were at a point in your life where you recognized that you were spiritually poor and you needed salvation. And it looks different for all of us, right? That's why testimonies are so fun and so powerful and so engaging. Because how God accomplishes that changes. But the core thing that doesn't change is that in that moment, you recognize that you were desperate and you were spiritually poor and you needed salvation. The salvation only God can provide through His Son, Jesus Christ. So number one was to proclaim the good news to the poor. Number two, to proclaim, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blinds. To show people, right, that there, there's freedom can be had. You can be released from the power of sin. You can be released from spiritual captivity. You can recover your sight. Right? And th again, this is beyond just physical healing, and Jesus will heal people's sights. He has the power to heal. But He's calling people to come to God on God's terms and accept the forgiveness that He offers through Jesus. And you do that, you're free from captivity. You're released, and the blinders fall off. You're living in a world of darkness, but all of a sudden there's, there's light and your spiritual blindness is starting to move away from you and you're seeing things differently and clearly. The Apostle John captures this in John 1, 
Verse 9 specifically, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is that light that's going to push back the darkness and the spiritual blindness of the people. And here's the thing, that if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, right, and you've been saved by the power of God, you recognize that you're spiritually poor, but here's part of our life, here's part of discipleship, right, is that we will continue to have a lifelong battle with spiritual blindness. What I mean by that is we all have sin, we all have blind spots in our life, and we need the power of the gospel, Right? We've been freed, we've been liberated from the power of sin, but we must continue to do the work to battle our sin and deal with those blind spots. He proclaims the good news to the poor. He proclaims liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. Number three, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And this is a quote from Isaiah 58, verse 6. Now, he's a prophet. Jesus is a prophet here. He's proclaiming the good news. But there's something different about him because the prophet in the Old Testament was one who could proclaim the message, but they couldn't accomplish or deliver the outcome of that message, right? Only God can do that. But Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I'm proclaiming it, and by the way, I can free you. I'm also your deliverer. I'm not just somebody speaking. I can deliver you. It makes us think back to Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, when John the Baptist is saying, listen, there's one coming after me that's stronger than I am, that's greater than I am. I can proclaim this ministry, this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but the one coming after me, he can accomplish that for you. That's what Jesus is saying here. That phrase, that, that including, the way Luke includes that in here, shows clearly, right, that Jesus is the Messiah. He can proclaim, but he can offer the deliverance that we need, and he can make it happen. He can fulfill it in our lives. Jesus is willing and ready and able to meet the needs of all those who are oppressed and who need the freedom and liberty that only God can, can offer through his son, Jesus. Number four is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, the year when God would offer the nation total forgiveness of their debt of sin towards Him. And Jesus takes that and makes that now a metaphor for, for salvation, right? I, I, can, I can deliver you, I can forgive you, I can restore you. It's a picture of freedom that only is offered by God through Jesus. It's this total forgiveness. It's this total salvation. It's this promised salvation that is found in Isaiah 61. Jesus' mission involves proclaiming the good news, but also fulfilling the role as Savior, as our Deliverer. There's, there's three tenses in the gospel, and I want to linger here for just a moment. You may have heard that we are saved, we are, are being saved, and we will be saved. 
and that, that matters here. Right? The fact that we are saved, there is salvation. God has saved us. Right? We are being saved. And what that means when we talk about, hey, I am saved, I am being saved, what that means is that the gospel is still at work in my life. You heard me say it. You never graduate from the gospel. We need the gospel each and every day of our lives. We are saved. We are being saved as we deal with our sin, as we wrestle with us, and as the gospel continues to work and move in our lives. And we will be saved. We will be glorified. And Jesus captures this, right, I think in, in, those, in those verses, in verses 18 and 19. Hopefully by, by now you know or maybe you don't know and this will be new information for you, but we get together once a month, myself and, and the people who do the music, and, and we sit down and we look at the sermons that are coming up and we pick songs to kind of tie in with the sermons, Right, so when you leave here, you may not hear a word that I say, but if you walk out of here humming one of those songs and it sticks in your brain for the next three weeks, then I, we've won. All right? Mission accomplished. The third song that we'll sing today is a new song. It's called, There is, there is One Gospel. And I want to read verse 1 for you, because I want you to see we are saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. There is one gospel on which I stand for all eternity. It is my story, my Father's plan. The Son has rescued me. Oh, what a gospel. Oh, what a peace. My highest joy and my deepest need. Now and forever, He is the light. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus reads... From Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. And then Luke is a fantastic storyteller. He likes to build tension when he writes. And then we get to verse 20. And Luke slows the narrative down almost painfully, right? Jesus rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. He sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue, in the synagogue, were fixed on him. Put yourself there. You wanted to know what he was going to read, and he just, he just read from Isaiah to us. And then he rolls up the scroll and hands it back and sits down, right? And, and you're, you're sitting there, right, with anticipation, You've probably scooted forward in your seats a little bit. You may be leaning in. What's he going to say? How, 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 how's he going to ex explain this to us? He's, he's this teacher that we've heard about. Okay, he's read this now. What is he going to say to us? And in verse 21, Jesus begins to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's, that is not all the words that Jesus spoke to the people in the synagogue that day. It says, and he began to say to them. And in verse 22, we read that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But this is what Luke captures. This is the, the sentence 
that Luke captures. It's what he records here for us. So you look at it this way. This is how hip and trendy I am. It's a reel. <laughs> so if you know what that is, right? It's a short, right? So you might have to go home and Google that, and that's okay. That's what he does. Luke focuses in on the claim that the promises that Jesus has read from, from Isaiah, are fulfilled in him. That the great covenant promises that the prophets long to see fulfilled, we sang that already in the song by faith, we sang those words, are realized in him. And what Luke does here, what it helps us to think through is like it pushes now this decision before the people. Jesus has read from Isaiah. He's explained it. So now what are you going to do with it? And what he is telling the people is that today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today <clears throat> there is salvation that is available to you <clears throat> in a way that's never been available before today. <clears throat> that op the opportunity for that salvation is available to you at this very moment. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, that now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Same kind of idea. And this isn't, by the way, a. Um, it's not like either you do it now or it's never available again. The emphasis is on the now, like now. You've heard it. What are you going to do with what you just heard? In essence, Jesus is telling the people in the synagogue, you know that time that all the people who've been faithful to God have been waiting for and longing for, uh, it's here now and it's found in me. What say you? And here's the response in verse 22. And the response was initially very positive, right? All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Right? They, they had heard about his teaching, and they're like, boy, you know, I know what? What they're saying about him is true. I like, guess is spot on. This guy's this guy fantastic. His words are, are different. They're full of, of grace, and there, there's, there's love behind them, and there's, there's compassion behind them. But the mood turns sour. Because when they ask the question, is not this Joseph's son... That's an objection. And we understand that as you read the rest of the passage, you'll, you'll see that it's an objection because they want to kill him and throw him off a cliff. Right? But this is an objection. He, he spoke well. He spoke words that were gracious and that were full of compassion. He made this, this wonderful declaration. Hold up. It's not, it's not this Joseph's son. How can a carpenter's son make such an offer? 
How could a common man, a blue-collar guy who pounds nails, how can his son make the claims that he just said? Is this not Joseph's son? And Jesus says to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, right? Jesus hears the comments. Jesus hears the murmuring. Jesus hears the grumbling, but you want to know what? Jesus knows their thoughts. So you see the divinity of Jesus right here in these pages in the early part of his ministry. He knows their thoughts, and he tells them, you're going to quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, which basically means you need to prove it to us, is what the people are saying to him. Prove to us the claim that you just made from Isaiah 61. He's asked them to believe. He's put that offer in front of them, that he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. But they're not going to buy in until he proves it. It's this prove-it-to-us mentality. And then sprinkled in with that... Right? There's, a li- there's a little hint. I guess it's really not a hint, right? There's, there's some regional jealousy here. Right? And maybe, I don't know, maybe Nazareth and Capernaum didn't really get along. Maybe they were bitter rivals. But you hear what Jesus says? What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Prove it to us. You're doing all these great things in Capernaum, do them here. You do them here, then maybe we'll believe who you are and who you say that you are, that you are the fulfillments of this. Do for us what you did for them, and we'll continue the conversation. Now, this is just the beginning, right, of Jesus' ministry, and we know that Jesus is going to regularly and routinely deal with what? Doubters, skeptics, people who second-guess, those who demand a sign. And as I was thinking about this this week, I was confronted with something in my own life. That there are times in my life that I am no different than the people sitting in that synagogue. I doubt that God's ways are good. I doubt that His commandments really apply to me. We talked about this yesterday at the men's thing, right? God's word's for somebody else, not me. This really can't be the will of God for my life. It must be different. Right? We still battle that. Right? We still, that's why we need the gospel each and every day of our lives to battle those times when we doubt, to battle the times when we question, when we're skeptical when we doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of of our gods. And Jesus goes on in verse 24, and he tells them that that a prophet will not be acceptable, is not acceptable in his hometown. He's saying that he's a prophet. He's proclaiming the good news. He's also delivering. He's talking about he's focusing on prophet here. But he's just like the Old Testament prophets is what he's saying, in this sense that he's going to be rejected by his own people. And if you read back through and read some of the, uh, the prophets of old, the Old Testament, 
It's amazing how much they were disregarded and ignored. One of the ones that I, I wrestle with the most is the prophet Jeremiah. Because God commissioned Jeremiah, and as he's commissioning Jeremiah, he tells Jeremiah, and I'm paraphrasing here, oh, hey, by the way, the people aren't going to listen to you. Go. And Jeremiah would be that prophet that was going to stroll into town, and people are going to be like, oh, well, here he is again, and you hear all the doors close. And they're calling the kids off the streets. Don't talk to that guy. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be rejected like the prophets of the Old Testament are rejected. There's a phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. The more you know someone or something, the easier it is to disrespect it, to mock it, to be sarcastic, to be condescending towards it. Same kind of idea here. They, they knew Jesus. They knew his family. They knew he was the carpenter's son. It, it, wait a minute. Is this... The carpenter's son. God has offered to accept all who come to him through Jesus, but the people will not accept Jesus. Right? And that local rejection, that rejection that he experiences in Nazareth, right, is just a picture of a much larger rejection as his ministry continues. But Jesus is not content to, to, to let it sit there because why? Jesus loves people. He's compassionate towards people. And so now Jesus is going to warn the people sitting in that synagogue. He's going to give them two examples from their history, actually from some of the lowest points in the history of the nation of Israel, and it's done as a warning. And we don't have time to un unpack all of this, so you have homework, right? The first one is Elijah, so you need to read this afternoon uh, when it's raining. Um, 1 Kings chapter 17 and chapter 18. But what Jesus says is, hey, listen, think back. Remember this guy, Elijah, right? He prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years, and there was a drought, and there was a famine in the lands. And God didn't send Elijah to Israel God sent Elijah to a Gentile widow, Zarephath, who lived in the land of Sidon. He sends a prophet, one of his prophets, to a Gentile widow. The last person that a Jewish person would expect God to, to help. But it wasn't raining in Israel, why? Because of their sin and because of their rebellion against their God. It's a just judgment for their rebellion. Deuteronomy eleven seventeen says, And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. It happens in the days of of Elijah, as the people were rebelling against their God, God says, fine, I'll send my prophet to the Gentiles. Second example is Elisha. This is 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And there were many people in the land of Israel who were suffering from leprosy, 
There were many lepers. But again, the people were rebelling against their God. They were forsaking their God. They were ignoring their God. They weren't accepting their gods. And so God sends Elisha and he heals a Gentile man named Naaman, a Syrian. Didn't heal his own people. Healed the Gentiles. Those who think that they are near to God and that they have all things figured out need to heed that warning. That's what Jesus is telling the people. It's a reminder from their history that when the Israelite people, a people of great privilege, who think they're untouchable, those people, when they reject their God, when they reject the prophets of God, when they reject the message of salvation from their God, God will send those prophets elsewhere, even to the Gentiles. Jesus will be forced to minister elsewhere. And at some point, if the Lord wills, we will get to the book of Acts and we will read about how after the birth of the New Testament church, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. It goes elsewhere. But it's a warning that Jesus gives his people, gives the people of the synagogue to be aware And here's their response, verses 28 and 29, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they repented, and they believed. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. All those who were in the synagogue, who heard Jesus read from Isaiah, who heard Jesus explain the text, to who heard Jesus lovingly give them a warning from their own history, were absolutely enraged and infuriated. And, and here's the thing. It, it, it's, they, they knew, the people sitting in that synagogue, they knew their history. They had to know their history in order to respond this way, right? They had to. They knew their history. They knew what Jesus was saying. And they're sort of saying, how dare this young upstart of a guy stand up here and correct us and rebuke us? We're Jewish people. We're, we're, we're part of God's chosen people. We're not the Gentiles. Right? How repulsive that you would stand up in front and you would challenge our status before God's. And the people in the synagogue rose up, Luke tells us, and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now, this looks like mob justice. 
uh, and, and to a certain extent, um, it is, due to their complete hard-heartedness and lack of understanding on what Jesus was claiming, who he's claiming to be and what he's coming to do. Right? They were so cold and disconnected and hard-hearted towards his message. So in a sense, it is mob justice, but it also was an indication right, that the people in that synagogue regarded Jesus as a false prophet who was worthy of death. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. Because the person who was viewed as blatantly violating God's law, a person who was viewed as blatantly blaspheming, could be executed on sight without trial. And so they're looking at the one whom God has sent to give them liberty and freedom and to save them as a blasphemer and as a false prophet, and they're going to kill him. And make, like, Jesus' life, right, in this moment is, is seriously threatened. Right? And, and we think back now to, to Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, when Joseph and Mary and Jesus, the baby Jesus, they're in the temple, and this man Simeon comes up, and he takes Jesus into his arms, and he praises God, and he thanks God for this, for him, for being able to see his salvation But remember, he, he turns to Mary and says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. It's happening. It's happening. And in verse 30, Luke tells us, but passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Jesus escapes the threat. Now, if, if you're like me, I sit there and think, come on, Luke, you couldn't put a little more detail in there? <laughs> right? No, 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 no specifics? Like, how, how did that happen? Right? This, this crowd's pushing him towards this cliff. They want to throw him off. He walks back. Like, how? Miraculous. Maybe it was work of the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't know. Luke gives us no specifics. We're, less, we're left wondering what happened. But I want to encourage you, don't linger on what happened or what didn't happen, or what we know, what we don't know. All we know is simply this, that Jesus' hour had not yet come. It was not yet time for him to suffer at the hands of those who reject him. It wasn't his time. But, but what's, it, what's it tell us? Right? If you sit and you linger here for a little bit, what's it tell us? It's almost like you can see the shadow of the cross already starting to take shape in the life and ministry of Jesus, is it not? They despised him so much and they rejected him so completely that they wanted to kill him. 
And in three years, he'll hear those words, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So there's a decision, right, as, as we think through this, right, how do we, how do we apply this? Okay, there's a decision that each of us has to make. Either we're going to identify with, his, with Jesus and his message and who he claims to be and what he can offer us, or we reject him. There's two choices on the shelf. Is Jesus the fulfillment of the promise in Isaiah 61? Is he the one who can not just proclaim the good news, but can deliver the good news, and that can deliver salvation and can restore us and reconcile us back to God, which, by the way, is the deepest need that anyone ever has had or ever will have on the face of this earth? Or is he an imposter? I'm here to tell you this morning that he is salvation, that he is the deliverer. He's the only one. You can be here this morning. You can be listening online. Maybe you're listening later on this week. I don't know. But you could be sitting here and you could feel this being imprisoned and bound by sin. And I'm going to tell you that it's only Jesus that can set you free. It's only Jesus that can bring you victory where your life is only sin, seen defeat. It's only Jesus that can break your slavery to sin and bring you to freedom and free you from the oppression of sin. You might be here this morning and you, you feel like you're in a spiritual darkness, that there's this gloom around your life. Only Jesus can bring you the relief that you long for so that you experience the Lord's favor, that you experience His grace and His mercy and His peace and His hope. Only Jesus can lift that heaviest burden that you feel and give you rest. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Thank you for listening to this audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and for more information about Twin Villages Church, visit twinvillageschurch.org. Soli Deo Gloria.